and welcome to the 3CR show. My name's Anissa and I'm here today with Jim and Lara and um, so we're from Doing It Ourselves. Um, Doing It Ourselves engages the broader community to talk about the harmful systems in society, encourage resistance against them and inspire people to take part in empowering alternatives because they do exist. We want to live in a world where we can meet our needs, have a healthy relationship with each other and the Earth's ecosystems and lead more fulfilling lives. Now I'll hand over to Jim and Lara to speak more about what's going to happen in today's show. Sure. Um, Hey, uh, if you hear a little background noise in the background, sorry, we're having some difficulty with some things going on in the background, which we're not sure on. Um, But uh, in terms of today doing it ourselves, we're here to talk today about uh, the Sustainable Living Festival that we went to on the weekend. We had a stall with a bunch of uh, workshops that we had. We uh, we also decided to um, we also decided to have a stall there and talk to the people a lot. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that. We'll also decide to talk about uh, people's pathways into into activism uh, through different pathways. And um, yeah, I guess we'll uh, we'll get onto a uh, community announcement and then um, yeah, hopefully we'll have some of those background noises out of the way once we get to a community announcement. So the Sustainable Living Festival, as you might know, was on St Kilda Road. We had two workshops that were communicating to people about um, the systemic changes that we are doing ourselves believe in. Yeah, I guess your interactions, how did you find it, Lara? The Sustainable Living Festival, yeah. I mean, it was a great space definitely to have conversations with people maybe we don't normally engage with for whatever reason. And the workshops were certainly interesting. Like, I think something that I found was an interesting space was the fact that uh, a lot of the workshops were presentations and we gave a bit more of a dialogue, which, you know, some people came up to us afterwards and said that was a really great idea. And I think you know, that's important generally is just to have a dialogue when we're talking about these sorts of ideas. And and maybe that was mimicked across the whole of the Sustainable Living Festival is perhaps I found slightly less of the dialogue and more of people talking at me, which I'm not too fond of. But I don't know. What about you, Jim? How did you find it? Yeah, I found it really good. We had lots of good engagement with the public. There was a real sense that people were ready to talk about things like systemic mm-hmm. change and realising that climate change isn't something that we're going to exactly buy ourselves out of. It's something that we're going to have to um, engage um, in our communities through different forms of, of system change rather than just replacing products. And I think people were really keen to hear it. And, um, yeah, it went really well. We had great feedback. We sold a lot of zines, and um, which, are a, which, are, which are really great, which doing ourselves obviously is a big, fan of and a big printer of and so yeah that's my I guess my feedback I guess we'll finish up on talking about the sustainable living festival and um, get on to what the discussion is today which is basically pathways to activism so this is I guess talking about you know there's community public that might feel like wanting to be engaged within um, social or environmental um, campaigns but what are, what are their pathways what are the access points how how exclusive or how um, acceptable is it and how easy is it for people to get involved in the movement? So um, I guess one 
question I guess I got for you, Lara, is what was your access into the movement? Like, what was your pathway to activism? Mm, well, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think maybe something that we should all potentially reflect on more in the movement. But, I mean, my pathway was perhaps a bit convoluted or long, but, like, I, I haven't been an activist for very long at all, like, just maybe even two years. But um, reflecting on my journey into it is kind of, I think, interesting in giving me insights into activist thought in general. But, you know, I don't know, I was always an enviro kid in a way. Like, I loved hanging out in nature and as a child. But and uh, sort of in high school, I, I was sort of aware... Like I was more aware of the climate change as being a factor that I really wanted to focus on in my life, but I didn't seem to have any way of expressing that. And I remember there was one point, you know, I was in year 11 and what had to focus on the exam and I was just looking out my window and just looking at the trees and like, if I don't do something soon, these are all going to go. And But I, hadn't, I was just kind of crippled by fear because I wasn't ever given any opportunity. And, I mean, you know, my school was sort of one of those elite private schools and we prided ourselves on sort of being progressive but there was still no option presented to me and I just thought okay I'm going to live my life tiptoeing around the edges of climate activism and the climate movement and that sort of was very crippling and so then when I moved to Melbourne I was super excited I was like oh I'm gonna find the you know I'm gonna find my people here and I know that Melbourne is like definitely a, a really awesome space for this but it took me ages to stumble across what I was interested in and yeah I mean that's really interesting in terms of why we're not so present in the movement to the general public maybe. Mm. So you were you were really wanting to be engaged for a while you had all the right um, ethos to getting involved in the movement and motivation but it wasn't really easy as that for you you kind of said you took a while what um, do you think was some of the stumbling blocks or hurdles to getting you straight away involved as fast as you would have liked? Well, I think there were a few. First of all, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know what could be done in terms of climate because I thought, well, it's such a massive issue, hey. You know, I go to Melbourne University and I was like walking around the club's day and I saw the Australian Youth Climate Coalition stall and I was like, yeah, sweet, that sounds like my sort of people. But, and then like I had a chat to them about what they were getting involved with and they were really focused on the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, everyone loves the Great Barrier Reef. That's really awesome. But I sort of like I'd never been to the Great Barrier Reef and I felt like it was a place that was quite removed from my life and as though focusing on a campaign that is removed from where I'm interested in and not looking at the bigger picture was not something I was getting super excited about. And then as well, like as part of that campaign, I just felt like I was getting people to sign a petition and I didn't know what was happening to that petition and I, I felt like I had no agency over that campaign and I felt like it was too single issue in a way mm. um yeah yeah so you kind of felt like you didn't feel like the the part that you were acting really gave you a sense of ownership and in and kind of a part of the campaign didn't feel like you were in, deeply involved in it you felt removed from the decision making processes yeah for sure definitely and and the decisions that i was making felt to me so trivial as to be inconsequential yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, also got Anissa in the studio as well and thought I'd throw you that question as well. Like, what was your pathway to activism? Well, I guess my pathway was similar to Lara's in some ways in that I was, in, in, yeah, always loved the environment when I was young, um, but then never really felt like there was any way of 
changing anything. Like I grew up in inner city Melbourne, went to some really good public schools. There's all this progressive talk about, you know, we need to, you know, protect the trees and stuff, but it never felt like it was really addressing anything. Um, my original plan was to be a politician, in fact, because I kind of saw the world as, yeah, the politicians are just trying to do what's best and maybe they're just a little bit wrong. So if I get in there, maybe I can give it a shot. And it took for me to go overseas to South America and kind of be like, whoa, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. There are people actually living, you know, really oppressed by the system and they're things like imperialism and colonization are huge and are perpetuated by my own country. And so then it took me to see that in another country to be able to come back to Australia and be like, oh, this is actually happening in Australia as well. There are people who are really oppressed and downtrodden by the system, but these people are also fighting. And that was really inspiring. So it took, I think for me, it took that vision of seeing how bad it was, but also seeing that people were actually doing something about it to be able to do that. And knowing from my friendship groups and where I've grown up because that oppression and that fighting is not visible at all. You don't see it on the nightly news. You don't read it in the mainstream newspapers. And so I can see how people don't get that drive to act. Can I ask, Anissa, when you came back from overseas, what what made that visible to you? Was it just the fact that you'd seen it in another country and then like when you came back it was sort of the veil was stripped away or did you have to go out and find the fact that people were doing stuff? Yeah, I had to look. Well, I felt like I was looking really hard. You know, mm. Now that I'm inside it, it feels like it's everywhere. But I had to go to, you know, move through some different groups to try and find people that were like-minded and wanted to think about things on a systemic level. And I, that was really hard to find. And like I spent a year at Melbourne Uni being in the student union and my job was basically trying to get students to care about the environment and it's amazing how difficult it is and people you know a lot of people care about trees but won't you know either because they don't have the time or the energy to make that step to find people or because they just don't think it's visible they just can't see the people who are acting even if sometimes us the people who are acting feel like we're yelling as loud as we can yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. It's nice to hear that you had the same path in a way to me of having to work hard to find mm. the movement in within activism in which you feel like you're making the most difference or making a difference at all. And I think it's just really, I, I'm worried about the people who don't have the energy to work hard and yet are wanting to make a change. And I, I mean, may I wonder if a, a part of it is the fact that one of the ways I got involved in activism was through the student union at Melbourne Uni and like through the Enviro Collective there. But even then I felt as though, you know, I went to Skipsland on a trip with the student union and that was really inspiring and I could see like actual forest action and see, you know, the devastating logging that was happening. But I still felt like it was a single issue in a way. It was like, oh, just climate change or just forest. or I don't, I don't know. I, I never, there was never any message given to me about, oh, these things are all interconnected until I went to Students of Sustainability, which is this amazing conference organised by the Australian Student Environment Network every year. And it was only sort of then that I there were people talking about, you know, colonisation and climate change and, and all sorts, all the, all the links. And 
And yet even that was just like chance that I happened to stumble across this email, which was telling me about students of sustainability. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? So what basically what we have is a movement full of like lots of energetic people, but there's could be all this untapped resources of a lot of people out there that might really want to make a difference. But the ease in which to get involved in the movement is really, really difficult. And, um, you know, it's almost like sometimes a bit of chance is involved. Um, you know, you've got to either know the right people or just be at the right place at the right time to hear the right thing. I guess it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think in terms of, okay, what are those issues? Like, what are those things that are, you know, in the way causing some type of barriers? What what things can we identify, I guess, within the movement? As yes. in things that are stopping people getting involved? I think people are just time poor. So even if there is that want there's just, you know, if you're a student, you have to study and you have to have a job. And you, the demands on your study are really, really high. And there's not this expectation that you'll sit around and talk about things. And then I can't even imagine what it would be like to have a full-time job and kids and a mortgage. And so I think that's a really big part of how it's difficult, but it's probably also our messaging as well. How do we talk to people is a really big thing. And obviously we're not getting through as much as we need to. Definitely, I think that's a big, big thing. And it, you know, just as a little side note, it's it's interesting that we have a, a world in which it's constructed that people are always have to be so busy, and so they never have time to get involved in any sort of resistance of any kind. Um, mm, a little bit yeah. too convenient for those in power, <laughs> keeping us busy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always I thought about it. I mean, a lot, but it recently, you know, it really dawned on me that there was a, you know, a, another um, action that we um, we attend. Lots of us um, within the group do activism in terms of direct action, and there was the typical, you know, you almost can't do an action without people walking past and someone saying, "Get a job," mm. you know, as they as they walk past for for those that are probably a bit more conservatively minded, and you know, it dawns on me that yeah, look, the only people that really can do this are people that have less job commitments if you work nine to five monday to friday the chance of you to actually go out and do these things is really slim so yeah it's it's kind of uh you know why why are people getting jobs it's it's almost goes against the idea of actually being able to have a really progressive democracy or any type of um authentic decision making um within the community you've you're kind of distracted by this work so um, getting a job impedes your activism directly quite, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting connection that, um, that yeah, I kind of eventually have to make is, do you guys think that there's any solutions to this? Like what, what are, what are pathways into activism that can kind of get around this? Well, I think it's just a lot of it also is to do with the, the opportunities we present to people of getting involved. And I mean, for me, I think a, a large part of it is giving people the power to feel as though they can make a difference in the world. And maybe that that could be giving people the ability to make decisions over things that they might want to do, or sometimes that takes a lot of time. So potentially even, yeah, like giving people the things that they can do which feel like they're making a difference but which don't take a long time. And, you know, maybe that's that's a myth. Maybe that never exists. I don't know. What do you think, Anissa? Um, Well, I think... You know, there are definitely ways to make activism more accessible. And, of course, I think we should give a shout-out to all those people that do have full-time jobs and still manage to take part in their communities in amazing ways and contribute. It certainly is very impressive, but 
I don't think that we can build, you know, a mass, you know, direct democracy or activist movement while people have these full-time jobs. So I think part of it is making our activism accessible. And if we have meetings, then doing it, doing them at night or on the weekend. I'm not expecting people to come or communicate, you know, over the phone potentially. But then I think it's also like in the long term, we've really got to sit down and be like, okay, why do people get jobs? Okay, it's probably because they have kids, they have a mortgage, they need to support themselves, they need to pay their rent. So how can we do these things without needing to rely on so much money? And, you know, this is a project that, you know, a, a really amazing example of this is a movement for a new society, which was an activist group in Philadelphia back in the 70s. And definitely, you know, house prices were a lot lower back then. Um, but they managed to get some land and kind of live together where, you know, most of them would have part-time jobs and they would contribute that to, like, you know, the group and the, you know, things that you have to buy. But they would also garden and fix things for each other and have a more kind of mutual aid solidarity economy where they weren't so dependent on the economic system and therefore they didn't have to have full-time jobs and so I think that's somewhere that we really really should be aiming for but of course it is very very difficult to get there. Yes yeah, super difficult hey and I mean that's something that doing it ourselves is also really interested in is that it's all very well to say that we need activism and we need resistance but we need to be able to support that and support ourselves in a way that lends to being able to have resistance and able to have activism and, you know, whether that's having a community garden so we don't need so much money to pay for the food or, yeah, whatever that might be. It's really important. Yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like there's a distinct connection between work life and our current lifestyles and um, activism. There seems to be a direct linkage there with how much time you can put into it and how much availability so um yeah i think it's good to have further discussions and open that up and in the future and think about you know the connection between work and and um you know doing ethical actions within our lives and getting involved with other other um ethical groups and collectives um, being environmental or social justice i guess one thing we can talk about is the most common pathway for most people, um, there's, there's usually two main ways. You'll see them either going in the direction of grassroots or um, NGOs. And um, I guess a little bit of a um, disclaimer that the definitions between those two are murky at best. And sometimes <laughs> it's a real grey line um, to determine whether something is grassroots or NGO. But, I mean, the general view is NGOs are your big giant environmental organizations with lots and lots of yeah and, and then then obviously non-government they're non-government organizations um and they have quite a large subscription fee uh so it's quite a large uh, donation turnout they have a lot of members and they have a real large reach and um quite a strong presence in the media and and social um awareness so those are groups like you know, Wilderness Society, Greenpeace, Australian Conservation Foundation, like WWF, um, you know, all these big organisations. And then you've got the grassroots, which are the lesser known stuff, more stuff that doesn't really rely on such big donations. You have little community groups. I uh, was wondering what your thoughts were on those pathways between the two, between the NGO pathway and the grassroots pathway. And, um, yeah, what your thoughts are on that, Lara? Mm, well, it's 
It's definitely an interesting one um, and something that I think people have been thinking about a fair bit over over the course of activist history. But, I mean, I guess I can present what my views on NGOs in general are that, that they are still operating with inside the system. And I think they have a place for sure. I mean, they can help train people. They can help, you know, they help facilitate wider action and, and they have resources. But a lot of me worries that NGOs are maybe distracting attention from grassroots action. And I mean, for me, definitely, whenever I've been involved in an NGO, I, I felt like I... I felt like the larger issue hasn't been there. I felt like it, they haven't been connecting the dots between all the different, you know, between the need for systemic change. And I feel like I haven't been given the autonomy, like I was talking about with the AYCC, for example. I I wasn't in, able to make the decisions. And, I mean, for me, a large part of the world I want to see is when people feel empowered to do what they want to do and are able to make creative actions. And I, to me, that's the only pathway I can see to, to having a better world is when, when people are actually given autonomy. And I think in many ways NGOs hinder that because they're a large organisation, you know, they're, they're still structured in a, within the system and they have to have a national campaign and or, you know, a citywide campaign and they, they like to coordinate between everything and, and sometimes that's helpful but me as a person coming along to a regular meeting is unlikely to change the course of the campaign. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, I feel like that can be quite an issue with NGOs. Yeah, Anissa, do you feel like um, sharing your thoughts on the different pathways between NGOs and grassroots and how those two pathways operate and... Yeah, maybe your thoughts on those. Um, sure. Well, I guess, you know, I agree with what Lara is saying. There are, I mean, you know, we've got to distinguish between different NGOs and they are all different and have their nuances and, you know, some work better than others, some are more democratic than others, you know. Some blatantly have CEOs and a whole lot of managers and are structured very similar to a corporation within the capitalist system and focus a lot on getting money and donations and less on actually what needs to be changed. Um, and that can often be really damaging because if you're worrying about your donations, then you might not do what's most effective for the environment. You do what's most effective for your donations. So there's a whole host of problems there. But I guess, yeah, as Lara was saying, they are so visible and they can be the stepping stone for so many people to get involved and I think, I mean, but then at the same time, there are a lot of grassroots groups that are the stepping stone for people to get involved. They're usually more local and smaller and so harder to find. So I think talking about these things and like criticising how different grassroots and NGO, NGOs work together is really important and how they can benefit from one another. But I think, you know, myself and potentially the other two here with me would see that like we want the movement to be as radical as it can. We we really want to change society significantly and the theory of change and the way that a lot of NGOs go about doing things isn't going to make that change big enough. You know, they're aiming for changes in laws, whereas I would like to see, you know, representative democracy drastically changed. So when we're working with NGOs, we've also got to realise that we probably have different outcomes and these conversations need to be having for new people who are coming in, whether it's through grassroots or through NGOs, need to understand that there's this tension and they can work out where they sit and what role they want to play. And so we can work together 
and not be a divided left, as um, often sadly happens, but also not think that we're all aiming for the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Also, you're talking about the tension. And I mean, for me, I wasn't even aware that grassroots activism existed until mm-hmm. a very short while ago. And so I think part of my issue with NGOs is that often they cover up the work that grassroots do. And sometimes, and not always, and this is definitely not a blanket thing, but sometimes they often take the credit for a lot of work that grassroots Mm -hmm. do and the groundwork that happens and like the hard slog because they have the resources and and the media listens to them more than they listen to you know random individuals off the street who are working towards a better world yeah yeah no you're definitely right i've definitely i'm seeing that where there's been lots of really great grassroots grassroots work and um yeah, you see them on the ground and, and, and you know, it's kind of like, a, a, you know, they don't have these big media campaigns so people aren't aware of them, but they do so much community engagement and so much engagement with the organisations that they're fighting against, whether it's through, you know, talking to them or having meetings or discussions or, or, or taking actions on them and making these big changes. But at the end of the day, yeah, when the NGOs can come back because they've had a petition that was against that same issue and then the change comes and they're like oh it was us we did great work and so yeah you can definitely um you can definitely see that that happening um yeah so maybe we'll just quickly go to a song and then we'll come back and hear more about jim and lara's experiences on this ngo and grassroots question um so you're listening to 3cr and this is charcoal charcoal lane by archie roach Hi, welcome back to 3CR. Here is DIO talking to you from uh, the 3CR radio station. We're covering ENGOs and activism at the moment, which is yeah, basically discussing uh, different pathways for communities to get involved within either environmental or social justice activism. And um, yeah, I was wondering um, yeah, what uh, Lara thought in terms of what we were talking about before if you had i guess more to add in terms of i guess ENGO, ENGO pathways you know you mentioned before that they're really big and i think anisa donald as well is saying that they're getting a lot that you know they're really a good first pathway for a lot of people why do we think that is I, I don't know, <laughs> because, I mean, my experience, I guess, has been in a way the opposite. To an extent, you know, some of the skills that I've learned in activism, I have learned from ENGOs. Oh, sorry, I should just clarify the E in front of NGOs stands for environmental. But I don't know. I, I think maybe NGOs have the resources to, to provide trainings, which can be very helpful. You know, someone like myself have zero skills in terms of media or, I don't know, how to do a direct action or something. But... I really think that, for me, that they're divorced from the issue itself. If we think about what the issue is, really, NGOs seem to be almost, to me, part of the issue. You know, Anissa touched on before the idea of they're still within the capitalist system and, you know, they still, in a way, have a, have a hierarchy, they're still commercial. And I think that can be quite quite an issue in, in the way. Yeah, Jim, what do you <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in general, um, yeah, I guess the, the interesting thing would be what's people's theories of change and that can really dictate, and I guess how they would want to be involved in the movement. If people's theory of change are, well, we just need to make some small reforms here and there and adjust the system to 
allow social justices to not take injustices not to take place and environmental destruction not to take place then that's probably going to lead them on a really different pathway i'd imagine i'd imagine you know it'd be really hard to conceive for someone who thought that we don't need to really change the system we just need to adjust it then why wouldn't you go with the big ngo that would be the obvious route of the most power so i think really the conflict really comes into play when you start to go okay do we need to change the whole system and have what what is essentially fundamentally a new system to really get the change we want on climate to to actually mitigate climate change to stop the forests being destroyed to stop oppression and war and all these things that are really all deeply interlinked it's only at that point that you kind of go okay well now if that's if that's my theory of change then all of a sudden engos start to look like they're actually not going to cause the solution because they're they obviously run off the system it's the system that keeps them alive they their fundamental structure is the current system base so yeah i guess maybe you know the communication of like what are people's goals what are people's change yeah and in terms of what people's change are i I think that really depends on how you analyze what the current situation is as well because if we feel as though climate change is a thing that that can be government controlled or if it's simply a thing of carbon emissions then yeah like you say ngos might help you with lobbying government but to me climate change is more than coal and co2 emissions or or any of those kind of single campaigns and in a way it's really so what the way we interact with the world around us in in a sense and i i mean i think a lot of climate change is a symptom of the way that we view nature and what what even is nature you know i think a lot of the dialogue is constructed around the fact that oh we there there is this issue in the natural world that humans have caused and we are separate from the natural world and therefore we can come in and fix this issue that we have caused in the natural world but perhaps it ignores the fact that we are intimately part of the natural world and like we have inside the natural world caused this issue and so not only is climate change thing but also like humans I guess are intimately affected by climate change because the natural world is so affected and I think a lot of what the system does is it works to divorce us from from place and from interaction you know we have to we were talking about work before you know it's it drives us to to not have time to see where we are in place. Um, and we have these big international corporations and international NGOs even, which in, in many ways aren't able to witness the issues of a specific place. And so for me, a lot of why we need change in the world is because we are divorced from place. Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering what your take is on what is the distinctive separation between grassroots and an NGO for you, what that personally means to you? It's a really good question, hey? And I, I think a lot of it, grassroots for me is the ability for a group of people who care passionately about something to get together and decide autonomously without any undue influence from the external world that they're going to make a change and they're going to do that how they feel like doing it and they're going to do it in the way they want to do it. Whereas NGOs, I guess, is more of that there's a paid group of people who decide what's going to happen and then they get in volunteers to help. So, yeah, I I think that would be the fundamental difference for me. I don't know, do you Mm. have a similar idea or a different... Um, Yeah, no, look, I don't even know myself, to be honest. I'm not sure um, where the distinction is. Um, I know I use the terms quite regularly in conversation. 
But yeah, what the difference is is always really hard for me to understand. Like, so I mean, is the second members within the collective start being employed? Do you think that could possibly be the point where it starts to become an NGO? Mm, that's a really good question, but maybe not. Maybe it's more the way you view that employment. For example, if members of a grassroots organisation have no other way of like subsisting and living, um, and we find a way to give them money for the work they're doing, I think that's a very different mentality from someone who, for example, has a full or even a part-time job on a salary. I really think to me it comes down to structure in the structure and mentality of the group so you know if we have this almost hierarchical or whatever sort of model of all the people a group of people are going to decide how it's going to work um, from the top and it's going to be implemented down and you have recruit volunteers so what so what about grassroots organizations that would operate on something like a snowflake model or or a more hierarchical model like a typical business model Mm, that's a really tough question hey i don't know i think that a lot of it has to do with the mentality in in which you approach it and Mm. maybe if grassroots if you have a hierarchical grassroots organization that is firmly rooted in place for example a a community group in a town who decides they're going to stop the building of houses on a wetland for example i think that that's still grassroots because it's connected to the community and it's connected to the place. Whereas maybe, I'm not sure if you could have an NGO on the same scale as that. So scale is part of it, do you think? Yeah, for sure. Like I was saying before, part of what I see as the issue of climate change is the issue of place and being connected to the things around you. And a lot of what NGOs do, in my opinion, is take the issue out of place and it becomes like a state, national, international issue, whatever scale you want. And it, it, it's no longer connected to the specific entities. Mm. Even now I say that, I'm, I'm thinking about even campaigns around national parks, for example, are very much based in place. But perhaps those are more to do that. That's maybe more of a conservation protectionist approach, which is different in a way, because it's it's more like, oh, I am the human and I'm going to go in and decide to conserve this part of the world as opposed to interact with it and live with it Mm. yeah cool interesting yeah nisa did you have any thoughts to add on that particular issue between um what is the difference between an ngo or a um or a grassroots organization well i was finding it really interesting when lara was talking about scale and i think that's a really difficult thing because you know, the climate crisis or, you know, all of the crises that are happening and have been happening for a long time um, make us feel like, oh, we need everybody or most people on this now. We need to build a mass movement. We need to mobilise. And I think that's a driving force behind a lot of NGOs and can lead to this kind of efficiency question of, oh, we need a small group of paid people to make the strategy and then you know, empower volunteers to be autonomous but within that strategy. So, you know, the amount of how autonomous that they are is questionable. And I think currently that seems to be one of the only ways that people can imagine a mass m- movement. But I guess what I've been thinking about, you know, looking at organisations like Friends of the Earth or even the Australian Student Environment 
network which definitely has its ups and, and downs in terms of power and membership there's a vision there of instead of having a central group of people that create strategy for this national or in, even international you know set of campaigns it's more you know we are a network of networks and so we might have this kind of central body of you know people that you know maybe do do the admin do some fund raising you know try and get conferences or meetings to happen so that people in the network can talk to one another but it's not oh we're sitting down and working out our big strategy and then sending out that in emails to our membership and i think that can be a really difficult thing to do today in today's society because you know i know for me brought up in formal education i was just kind of used to being told what to do and that was what was most comfortable to me and so a lot of people in society are kind of scared of and don't have the confidence to have that autonomy to drive their own campaign um but i think when done well it can be you know, you, you you can have these autonomous collectives doing their own thing, but they are connected to this wider movement in a non-hierarchical way. And that doesn't seem to be something that's discussed so often when we're talking about climate change. I think the rhetoric is a lot more about the urgency and we need to get governments to do this and we need to call a climate emergency, we need to get everyone to divest or like, you know, there are so many things which are good in raising the consciousness but are not about building up, you know, individuals and groups to do exactly what they want to do. It's more about building up groups to go by this specific strategy in their own way, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I think there's definitely a lot to be said by, like, you know, lots of different groups doing individual things and different individual tactics to all reach a similar goal rather than having everyone come together and partake in this one overarching tactic on this one overarching campaign in this one overarching style you know and there are some NGOs believe that that's you know that mass global action in one way in one strong thing i.e like giant climate march is the way to go forward but I mean that's you know that's not it's not how capitalism works that's like capitalism right now is winning and it's not because it's one united front i mean we're all taking part in capitalism every day but we've all got our individual ways of doing it and our own individual styles and we're all got like you know these little groups and people individually um you know doing their own thing and it still drives this capitalist machine and so we could flip it on our heads and if we all kind of took that autonomy um, within ourselves, then we might be able to possibly overtopple um, something like capitalism. You've got, you know, there's no everybody get up at the exact same time and all come together like this one united army and all buy th everything from this one shop and then everyone move over to this next shop and buy everything from that shop. Like, there's no united front. It's quite happening on a, on a very disconnected, autonomous scale with people. So maybe, yeah, the answer to defeating capitalism would be something similar. So so you're trying to tell us that we should be more like capitalism? We should totally all be capitalists <laughs> and that's right. No, I think, you know, just the idea that, you know, that something is big and powerful because it's all one united front could be a false um, thought and it could be it could be a theory that isn't really, you know, necessarily have to be done that way all the time. We can... 
you can have a force with great strength um, and great power, like a movement, and it doesn't have to be controlled by one way of doing something. You can have lots of individuals going out on their own pathways and still ending up at the same goal. Yeah, and I think that definitely links back to how we get people engaged in activism and, like, my own pathway, for example. If we present... Like you were talking about the climate emergency before, or the urgency behind it, and yes, it's urgent, but what's more, in a way, what's more urgent is to give people the ability to make change in the world. And I think that a part of that is, you know, having all a diversity, and you can only ever defeat, or not even defeat, but you can only ever transform something with a lot of ways and a lot of diversity. And I think that's also reflective of different people's visions because not everyone has the same vision and so trying to unite everyone under the same banner yes we have loose associations between people but I you know I probably don't my utopia is probably not the same as Jim or Anissa's and it might be similar and that's you know why we're here sitting in this radio station together chatting but it's only by recognizing that everyone is different but associated I think can we ever get where where we want to be yeah Mm. Mm. Definitely. I mean, I read in a really amazing book a couple of months ago um, about this. Like, it was phrased really nicely for me talking about this myth of a common goal. For those book nerds, it's a book called Green Power. Um, It's a history of Australian environment movement that was written in 2000, so a bit out of date. But it has this amazing kind of way of saying, you know, you sit down with a lot of activists and or people striving for change and you ask you know what are we fighting for are we all fighting for the same thing and they'll say yes yes we are we're all in this together and then you ask okay well what what is your particular vision and you get all these different answers and so instead of kind of saying well you're wrong and I'm right and you know like let's fight it off against each other um, I think it's that much more kind of multiplicity of voices going in in the similar direction together and being able to discuss that and work out when they can work together. And it's really interesting with this urgency question. I think, you know, people kind of freak out a little bit and they're just like, oh, we need to do something and we all need to do it now and we need to do it in this way and we need to centralise here. And, you know, I think that can be really problematic because there's been an emergency you know, for the whole time that humanity ha- has existed, there's been emergencies for whatever, you know, group that's been, you know, trodden on by a different group, whatever wars happening, whatever amount of homelessness, you know, colonization has been an emergency for a very long time and continues to be one. And so if you kind of step back and have a look and you're like, okay, so we keep fighting these em- emergencies and they keep coming up, so maybe we should look at this, you know, more from a root of the problem kind of way and how are these things connected. And I guess if we come back to this conversation of how people get involved in the movement, you know, there are some people, you know, maybe we we can hear a bit of Jim's experiences about how he got involved in things, but I think there are some people who can see this interconnected um, oppression and systemic view you know, from quite early on and can be like, whoa, this is a huge thing. This is all connected. How do I fight it and change it? But I think for a lot of people, they do get involved on the single issue stuff. It's really hard to see that entire web and interconnectedness with all of its academic jargon and activist jargon and all of that. And so, 
you know, these single issue things can be really important, but then maybe trying to draw people out. But I'm not sure what your experiences, Jim, would have to add to that. I don't know what my experiences would have to add to that either. But um, I do know that I think that, yeah, it's great that we're having these conversations and we we need to have these conversations further. And I hope listeners have these conversations with their friends and, and colleagues and discuss how did we get here? What are the what are the solutions and, and what pathways do we all want to take to get to, to this future that we're aiming for? You know, we definitely don't have a lot of time to kind of mitigate climate change but um that doesn't mean we need to come up with this warlike strategy and this united warlike front to tackle it i think there's a lot of power in individual collectives and um autonomous communities that can really make a big change i think we're going to pretty much wrap up in a minute because we've uh we've been here on air at uh, 3cr for an hour now which is the end of the sewer show so thank you heaps for listening. Thanks for everyone at doing it ourselves, including Lara and um, and Anissa um, today. Thanks for working on the panel. And yeah, I think we're going to go out soon to a, a new song. Um, we're going to also, yeah, Anissa also has something she wants to say. Um, we'll just do um, a bit of how you could find out more about doing it ourselves. Um, we do have a Facebook page, which you can like and find our events if you want to come along um, where it's looking for people to get involved or just to be part of this conversation because as we've said today the more voices the stronger we are we want to get that multiplicity happening and also if you have any questions or ideas for anything for us to talk about on this show you can email info at doing it ourselves.org um, we love to hear from you yes yeah, so Thanks for listening to to 3CR on 855 AM. We'll um yeah, we'll put you out to a, a song which is called Revolution and uh yeah, good luck with the revolution. <laughs>